Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at theopenhouse.net.au blog site. Well, as you've already heard, tomorrow, July 20, marks the 40th anniversary of mankind's first step on the moon. Only 12 people have ever had that experience. Only 12 people have set foot in that bright grey planet that we gaze up at each night. And in chronological terms, we are about to speak to the 10th. Charlie Duke took part in four Apollo moon missions. He was capsule communicator for the Apollo 11 mission. It's his voice you can hear giving fuel updates to Neil Armstrong in those very well-known recordings. He was one of the backup crew in the Apollo 13 and 17 flights. And most significantly, on April 20, 1972, he and colleague John Young spent three days walking and even driving on the moon's surface as part of Apollo 16. Charlie's life has taken some twists and turns since then, so there's plenty to talk about, and that's why I'm so glad that Charlie Duke is with us. Charlie, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's good to be with you today. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, so many little boys dream of being astronauts, but uh, when you were growing up, there was no dream of being an astronaut. The idea hadn't even been invented really yet. So your story is interesting, how you entered NASA. You, You started off in the Navy, then you went to the Air Force, then on to NASA. Now tell me, when did you seriously consider the idea of joining the space program? I think it was probably about five years after I graduated from the Naval Academy. I was in the Air Force. Uh, I was uh, at MIT uh, doing a master's program in aeronautics and astronautics and working on the uh, Apollo guidance and navigation system. I met some of the astronauts, and they were so excited and uh, thrilled about being that, having that job. And that began me, uh, began me thinking about uh, perhaps... Uh, that would be a job I could do uh, hmm. when I finish my training. Did you ever think, though, that you would one day set foot on the moon? Oh, not in my wildest thoughts uh, or dreams. Uh, I uh, wanted to be an astronaut. I definitely made that decision when I was out at uh, Edwards Air Force Base during test pilot school. And fortunately, I, I was selected, but we had 40-something astronauts who were qualified to fly back in those days. And we knew we didn't have that many flights. I w- we were the junior group, and the fact that we would get to fly was uh, just a figment of our imagination, if you will, because <laughs> everybody was ahead of us. Well, we could talk about all of those other Apollo uh, flights that you were, you were a part of, those Apollo missions, but I think there's so much to explore just in terms of your, your actual experience on Apollo 16 that I'd like to, to focus on that. We could talk about you preparing for it. We could talk about you getting into that giant suit, and it's an amazing suit. It's got so many bits and pieces. It takes two people to actually help you get into it in the first place, doesn't it? Well, it does in training because it's heavy. The backpack's heavy, but uh, up in uh, in flight, of course, uh, on the moon, you're one-sixth gravity, and uh, you had your partner there on the lunar surface sort of help you get zipped up and stuff, but you could get in it all by yourself. But generally, it was a two-man operation. We would help one another. Mm. So you're sitting in a massive rocket, and you start hearing the 10-9-8 countdown start from Mission Control. Describe the emotions. How do you feel at that moment? Well, you're ready to go. Uh, we had been uh, two years in training, and, I, and I'm telling you, uh, I was ready to go. I wasn't looking forward to an abort. I wasn't looking forward to any delay. I wasn't looking forward to another month of training. Uh, I was prepared, and uh, my thoughts were, let's light this thing and let's get going. <laughs> but, but there must have been some sort of anxiety there. Well, not really. The anxiety comes from, is it going to work right? 
are we going to make it off on schedule? We only had a four-hour window where we could launch, and uh, or we'd have to delay for 30 days. And so the anxiety is, come on, keep counting. And then once it ignites and you're on your way, the anxiety shifts uh, to uh, keep it all working right. Yes. Just explain that four-hour window. Each Apollo uh, landing had a specific point on the moon that we had to touch down in for the exploration. Uh, and to hit that point from the Earth uh, with the fuel uh, restrictions and everything else, the limits of the Apollo system, there was only a four-hour window where you could launch uh, and actually get to that point on schedule. Outside of that window, you were going to land, you had to land somewhere else, which we hadn't trained for. That restricted us to a, a four-hour launch window. Okay. So the rockets start, and everybody watches these, you know, blazing plumes of flame and smoke and everything come from the uh, right. from the launch pad. <laughs> And you shoot into the air. You can't see where you're going. I guess you really have to trust the competence of your colleagues at Mission Control from that point on, don't you? Uh, we have a guidance. We had a, a, a guidance reference system in Apollo that I couldn't see. It was on the other side of the airplane. It was in front of the commander, and the windows are covered over at this point in Apollo, so you can't see outside. And your guidance on board says you go, and Mission Control says you go. Uh, and, of course, the final authority is mission control. And uh, if they say you're getting off track, abort, then you better do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, uh, everything we were right on trajectory, but we were shaking like crazy from side to side. It was a very substantial vibration in, the, in that Saturn rocket. Uh, you know, it's uh, almost 110 meters tall. So it was uh, vibrating uh, from side to side pretty good. Yeah, Charlie Duke is with us on Open House right across the nation, the 10th man to walk on the moon, an amazing story. So, Charlie, here you are. You're uh, blasting up into air. You get into orbit, and then you're actually experiencing this zero gravity. Now, give us a bit of an idea as to what you can do and the kinds of things you experience when you're actually up there. I mean, it actually feels a bit strange and even painful, I've heard you say before, on the body for, for a period of time, doesn't it? Well, at first, you, you have a headache. Uh, it seems like your blood pressure is real high. You know, your heart doesn't have to pump blood against gravity like it does down here. And so you have this sort of pounding sensation in your head. And I felt like I was going to get seasick for the first hour or so. Fortunately, that went away. Uh, and then I was able to uh, relax and uh, float around the spacecraft, do the procedures and the checklist items that I had to perform. The other two guys on board, John and, and T.K. Mattingly, they didn't have any problems at all. And zero gravity, uh, once you got used to it, your body adjusts, uh, the headache goes away, uh, and you just really enjoy this uh, lightness, and you just sort of float around wherever <laughs> you want to. And, uh, and there's always the case of the stray fruit juice drip. Tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that occurred later on. Uh, we were in lunar orbit, and we had a... Uh, what I call a drink bag. It was inside of our suit that contained some fluids, in this case orange juice, that we were to drink on the lunar surface. Well, inside the suit, every time I'd breathe, my valve leaked, and this orange juice would float out of the bag uh, into my helmet, uh, and uh, it, it was just very, very frustrating. And it also got very, very messy because orange juice is very sticky when it starts to dry up. 
and so it was just all over inside my helmet and uh, it uh, elicited some um, uh, crude comments if you will <laughs> from us in those days <laughs> but it did because this is a little solitary drip that would just be flying around inside your helmet yeah, yeah you, the zero gravity allowed you to have a bit of fun up there too you you did a, your own moon olympics i hear we well, that was on the moon. Uh, the one six gravity on the moon required it was uh, really freeing. Uh, down here with all of my equipment on, uh, I weighed uh, three hundred and sixty two pounds uh, up on the moon. Uh, I weighed sixty pounds, yeah. and so you could jump high, but easy to lose your balance. So we were just thought we would be fun and have the moon Olympics on the moon. <laughs> Uh, and a high jump and a board jump. It turned out that uh, during the high jump, I fell over backwards, which was the only scary moment of the whole mission. Uh, fortunately, my suit held together, and I bounced onto my back. And uh, uh, But that ended the Olympics. It was uh, really a frightening moment at that point as I was falling over backwards. Now, now tell us why, because the, the fact is that if something had have happened to your space suit, I mean, what, what would have happened? Well, I, my spacesuit, I wasn't concerned about the spacesuit, actually. It was very strong. Uh, it, it had been demonstrated to me that you could, you know, pound it with a sledgehammer, and it was going to hold together. Okay. The, the, the weak link was the backpack, uh, which was our life support system, which contained oxygen and electrical power and cooling water and communications, and it was cables and electrical systems and plumbing and if you fell on your back on that, uh, you could rupture a tank, you could rupture the plumbing, and you lose all your pressurization and you die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the body can't survive a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And so the danger on the lunar surface or out in space on a spacewalk is if a glove pops off or a helmet breaks or something happens, you lose your pressurization, there's no way out, you're dead. Tell us about some of those other small margins of error, I guess. The, what else could have gone wrong with what you experienced up there? Well, of course, the uh, in the final stages of landing, uh, we could have had a computer problem that would cause the, the jets to fire incorrectly. We could have had a short in some of the, uh, in, uh, the electrical systems. Uh, which would lose, uh, could lose pressurization. You could lose uh, the, your guidance system. Uh, there were a lot of little things that could happen that could kill you uh, in the final stages of flight. And, of course, on liftoff from the moon, if the engine didn't light and you couldn't get it lit through the emergency procedures, you were you're just going to die. Uh, there was sooner or later uh, you would give out oxygen, just probably just go to sleep from the high concentrations of carbon dioxide. Yeah, it really is an amazing feat of humanity that we've actually achieved it, isn't it? It's, it's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. Looking back, uh, you know, with the, what looked like from now rudimentary technologies, but then the state of the art, our computer uh, on board had 80K memory, uh, and, <laughs> you know, wow. your cell phone has lots more than that <laughs> in miniaturization and everything, but it, it all worked, and... Uh, there were, we had motivated people, dedicated people, smart people uh, involved in all stages of this program, and people didn't mm. make any mistakes, and except for Apollo 1, 
Apollo was a tremendous success, even recovering Apollo 13, which was a, a near disaster. Yes, which you also were involved with. We're, right. talk- we're talking to Charlie Duke on Open House tonight. The openhouse.net.au has the podcast. Charlie, with uh, colleague John Young, walked for three days on the moon as part of the Apollo 16 mission back in 1972. An amazing story. Some amazing experiences. Charlie, you're in... I want to get the phrases right, the uh, the terminology right there, because you were up in the uh, the lunar module. The module actually parts company with the spaceship. Yes, we had uh, two spacecraft in Apollo. The primary spacecraft that took us to the moon and returned us was called the command module. Uh, that's what we rode in going to the moon and returning. On Once we got into lunar orbit, John and I got into the lunar module, which was the vehicle that would take you down the land uh, onto the lunar surface, and that would be your home for three days, and then you would lift off in the upper stage called the ascent stage to return to orbit. So you're in the module and you're approaching the moon's surface. You can see the, the craters started to get closer and closer to, uh, to you as you're looking through the window. How do you feel at that moment? Uh, very excited. Actually, you don't see the lunar surface until you are about uh, two kilometers above the surface. And at that point, the vehicle makes a maneuver and the, and the surface comes into view through the front window. And we recognized the major landmarks in our landing area, and we knew we were almost directly on target and on track. And so we began, I began to look out the window to uh, uh, see about our traverse to the north, uh, which we had thought was going to be very rough uh, terrain. It turned out it looked okay. Uh, Took a quick glance out for the west. Uh, That terrain looked okay. And then then, of course, we started concentrating mostly on getting a safe landing. So yes. I talked John. John was actually flying, and I talked him down, giving him information that he needed to make a safe landing, and we did. And so, Duke, you then land on the moon, and then you have to sleep. I mean, how can, how can anybody sleep when they've just landed on the moon? I mean, you'd be like a kid before Christmas. Well, exactly. Uh, and that first rest period, it took me, I knew I wasn't going to get to sleep, so because <laughs> my mind was just racing, you know, about I'm going to be out on the moon here in, in eight hours. And uh, so I had to take a sleeping pill uh, the first night. <laughs> but after the, fir- sec- the second and third rest periods, you were exhausted from working in that spacesuit uh, for eight hours or being in it for eight hours. And overcoming the pressurization resistances and stuff like that. Mm. So you took off your suit after you got back in the second night and the third and just went right to sleep. So Ken Mattingly is back in the commandership. You and John Young then don the spacesuits and go for a moonwalk. Tell me what that's like. Well, of course, very, very exciting. Uh, uh, emotionally, it was a great high, the, the culmination of all of our training and, and effort. And so, uh, John, I opened the hatch. Uh, John got out, climbed down the ladder, and a few minutes later, I climbed down the ladder. And since we were the fifth landing, we knew we weren't going to sink into the moon dust. Uh, it was going to support our weight. Mm-hmm. So we just hopped off the pad, and uh, and I was in awe of the beauty of the moon uh, and the pristine uh, nature of it and the thoughts kept occurring nobody's ever been here before <laughs> you know look at the mountains to the south and the mountains to the north the, the gray 
rolling terrain and just the excitement of being there. You know, it's like a kid Christmas morning running from one present to the next, and mm-hmm. that's uh, really the way we did it, but more in an organized fashion because we had a lot to do and a lot to accomplish. So we were just in wonder and awe as we were going about our business. You did have some uh, some jobs to do, like collecting moon rocks and things like that, didn't you? Well, that was the primary objective, of course, was to uh, collect uh, the variety of rocks that we were to uh, find in our landing area. But we also had a whole a suite of experiments that we in place and left on the moon, uh, two seismic experience, a magnetometer, a mass, a heat flow, a mass spectrometer, uh, those kind of things that would measure uh, these parameters of the moon where we landed. And then we had a lot of special geology experiments that we did. You also got to race around in that lunar buggy. I don't know if I got the the, the, the terminology correct, but uh, you had that uh, that car that you were racing around the place with. That sounds like a lot of fun. Looked like a lot of fun. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was called the Lunar Rover was the official name, and we just called it the Rover. Uh, I was the navigator, and I sat in the, in the right seat. Uh, John was the driver. He sat in the left seat, and... Uh, so I had a set of maps that would navigate, try to navigate us from point A to point B. Uh, the farthest we got was about four, maybe five kilometers away from our landing spot, and uh, it was rough driving on the on across the moon. Uh, this little car only weighed eighty pounds. It bounced a lot. You had to put on your seatbelt, uh, and it spun a lot. Uh, your the back end was very sensitive steering, so the back end would break loose and spin out a little bit so uh it was a challenge driving it for john but uh, also a lot of fun yes now the lunar rover that's still up there on the moon isn't it there there are three yes the last three apollo missions uh, had a rover so huh. there are three and as i say to folks if you want an eight million dollar car with a dead battery there are three <laughs> of them on the moon <laughs> Because when when it's outside of any atmospheric conditions like we have here on Earth, they'd actually all be in pristine condition, wouldn't they, apart from the battery? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, they should be, uh, unless a meteor hits, uh, meteorite hits right next to them and obliterates them, uh, they're probably in uh, drivable condition mm-hmm. except if you change the battery. That's fascinating. Yeah. Did you bring back any personal mementos, Duke? You know, any moon rocks sitting on your shelves or any moon dust saved from your shoes? I got some. I got the maps that I was telling you about. Yeah. Uh, the shovel that we used on the moon. Uh, some of our checklists that we were using. Uh, some little pins that were pulled out of the experiments as we deployed them. I stuck in my pocket. Uh, but we weren't allowed to keep any moon rocks or moon dust and uh, of any significance. So. Uh, on uh, and I don't have my moon boots. We left those up there, ah. uh, which was a mistake. I wish I <laughs> brought them back. Well, what, why? Yeah, why did you why did you leave them up there? We only had a limited uh, weight that we could lift off the moon, and the rocks were the majority of the uh, of the payload, if you will, plus us. And so there was a very few pounds of material that we could bring back extra with us. Uh, so we kicked out the, the backpacks. We didn't need those anymore. Uh-huh. We left the moon boots up there. But they didn't weigh very much. I wish I 
wish I'd had one now, but yes. uh, as a memento, but I don't. Yeah. Charlie Duke is with us, the uh, 10th man to walk on the moon with the uh, Apollo 16 mission in 1972. A fascinating story. There's more of the story to come because we're going to talk about Charlie's exploration of faith, which came later. Theopenhouse.net.au for the podcast. So it's time to go back home. You've chucked out the boots, you've chucked out the uh, the backpacks and all of that kind of stuff. And then you get back to the, the commander vehicle, you fly back, and then you are sitting in this hunk of steel hurtling back towards Earth. What's that like? Well, it was, uh, again, a three-day journey back, uh, and it was very relaxing for us because mission accomplished. Uh, spacecraft was in good shape technically and uh, operationally, and so we had about a day where we got everything tied down and situated and secure uh, for the reentry and uh, just uh, got in position to uh, reenter, and which was the last spectacular uh, experience of the whole mission as we hit the atmosphere at over 40,000 kilometers per hour. We had a uh, fireball around the spacecraft. As, uh, it was like being inside of, of a furnace. Uh, uh, outside it was very hot, but inside it was a very comfortable 70 degrees. And so we were decelerating at seven and a half times gravity. So it felt like a big elephant sitting on your chest for a while. Then that went away, and uh, you started falling uh, towards the earth, and a parachute came out at about 8,000 feet, 3,000 meters or so. And uh, you had had a big splashdown uh, on the Pacific Ocean, and it was mission complete. In fact, actually, when you did the splashdown, you almost uh, were knocked out, weren't you? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I had a big, uh, I was uh, sort of out of position in my seat. I was looking out the right window at a helicopter, and uh, Mattingly was calling out the altitude, and I said, well, when he gets to 100 feet, I'm going to put my head back, and he was calling 500, 400, 300, 200, 100. When we got to 100, we hit the water. Oh, right. <laughs> and my it's and I had a little whiplash, and I hit the corner of the couch, which uh, uh, gave me a, a few stars. I didn't, I'm not quite unconscious, but it was uh, yeah. 10 seconds or so. And then I had to push in a circuit breaker so we could jettison the parachutes, which by this time, in a strong wind we had, it flipped us over and we were upside down. So we had to get righted back up before we could get outside. Charlie, you, John and Ken shared an experience that only literally a handful of people in history have ever experienced. Did that form any special bond between you three? Have you you stayed in touch over the years? Uh, Yeah, we're still close friends. Uh, John and I particularly, uh, we see one another two or three times a year. He still lives in Houston. Uh, T.K. Mattingly is a good friend, but uh, see him maybe once a year. But our friendships are still very strong. Going through something like that, you'd have to be... You, you've experienced something that so few people have that have to be bringing you together in some kind of special way, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, well that's true. I, you know, you're in a very confined uh, environment for 11 days, and uh, if you don't have compatible personalities and stuff, it could have been very strenuous and uh, stressful. And you did say that you shared so much together. I mean, literally, when uh, a toilet break came for each one of you, one moved up one end of the uh, the module and the other two moved up the other, didn't you? <laughs> right, yeah. It wasn't no privacy in Apollo. Uh, we had, you know, 300 cubic feet of space, and uh, so if you had to go, you just, uh, everybody just got out of your way and... and <laughs> 
And you did your business. <laughs> <laughs> Those 11 memorable days there were uh, yeah, in April. Really was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely memorable. And back in April of 1972. Now, you have described yourself as pretty driven in those days, driven for success and driven in your career. But once you've walked on the moon, what more is there left to achieve? Describe your emotional state after Apollo 16. Well, after Apollo 16, I was I was pumped up, as, as you can imagine, of having just experienced this great adventure, and I wanted to go again. So I volunteered for backup crew for Apollo 17 uh, for the outside chance of, uh, of maybe going to the moon again. Well, it didn't work. Uh, they stayed healthy, and the primary crew flew. And after that was over, it was uh, January of 1973, so it was like nine months later after we flew, and now Apollo was over, and the thought did occur to me, okay, now what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You're 37 years old. You've had this great experience. You've climbed the top of the ladder. Uh, how are you going to top this, buddy? I began to look around trying to find uh, what would satisfy. Uh, I worked on a space shuttle. It was exciting, but not as thrilling as Apollo. I took my eyes off the moon and put them on money, thinking that business and making a lot of money would satisfy this drive that I still had. You see, in my heart, that drive that took me to the moon was still there, uh, and while it was satisfied for a while now, that I, I was still motivated to do something to bring this peace and satisfaction and purpose to my life, mm. but business didn't do it. Uh, it was only later on, about six years later, when I really found out the uh, the answer that I was mm. searching for. Well, part of your answer actually came through your wife, because during this time, when you're kind of wondering, what on earth am I going to do, and why do I still have this emptiness in my soul, Dottie, your wife, she's going through her own dark valleys, isn't she? Depression, even, even suicidal feelings. Uh, yes, uh, and that was a real shock to me of course uh we had been married nine years when i went to the moon and then the ensuing three years after that was very tough on Dottie. she thought that when the moon flights were over uh we could work on our marriage because it was under a lot of stress and strain uh at that point me gone all the time training uh anxious she anxious about uh my safety etc two little kids to raise uh, so it was a lot of stress on her life and she wanted to work on her marriage after I got back, but it turned out that I was still driven, and she was saying, well, I'll never have a happy marriage, and so she tried a number of things to find her direction, but uh, nothing worked uh, for her until some people came to our church in October 1975 on what was called a Faith Alive weekend, and these people had a personal relationship with Jesus, and uh, they had a peace and a joy and a purpose in their life, uh, and they said Jesus brought it to them, and they related their stories, uh, some similar to what Dottie's was uh, going through and how they had experienced a transformation. So she, uh, after that weekend, she prayed, uh, God, I don't know whether you're real, and Jesus, I don't know whether you're the Son of God, but if you are, I give you my life. If you're not, I want to die. Well, it really is a God, and Jesus came into her life, and I've watched her change from sadness to joy over the next uh, three to four months, and uh, uh, things really started getting better at home, but I was in business at this point and not really interested in uh, 
in a deeper walk with God. I believed in God. You know, mm-hmm. I'd been baptized and I went to church faithfully and all of that. But it was more of a uh, of a, a mental uh, acknowledgement of God than rather a heartfelt understanding yes. and knowing God. Yes. So uh, Dottie, over the next two and a half years, she just began to change and love me, and our home was uh, began to have a peace in it. And uh, after I sold this business, finding out money wasn't the answer, I, we, uh, we were invited to a Bible study at a tennis club one weekend in April of 1978. And at that point, uh, of my life, uh, I realized that uh, I had to make a decision that Jesus was really the Son of God or the biggest liar that ever walked. Mm-hmm. And scriptures that I'd learned in Sunday school years ago began to come back. And it was, is this true or is it not true? Mm-hmm. It's either true or it isn't. There's no maybe. You know, there's no riding a fence. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is either who he says he is, who died for our sins, that we might have eternal life, or he's a big liar. You, can, you We get to make up our minds. We have free will. We can ex- receive it, believe it, accept it in a, in a heartfelt way, and our life will be transformed by his power, and we can walk with God, or we can turn away and say, I don't need any of this, and into eternity without God. Uh, it's amazing how... God loves us, but He's not a make, doesn't make us robots, and we can choose to be obedient and follow and and uh, experience the joy and the love and the peace of God. And that's what happened in my life when I said yes, Lord. Yeah, the thing that I find amazing about your story, Charlie, is that the moral of it is that you can travel to the moon and back and still be spiritually empty. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I sure it wasn't a spiritual experience for me going to the moon. I didn't feel close to God. wasn't searching for God any more than I had, which was church and Sunday acknowledgement of God, but no, no seeking Him, no desire to serve Him. But I realized that what was really my God in those days was my career. Mm. Uh, I put career first in my life, and career is not God. Mm. Money's not God. Sex is not God. Idols are not God. You know, there's only one God. His name is Jesus. And if you put anything else above him in your life, it I've, it was you're going to be empty. Yes. Sooner or later, you're going to end up disappointed. Yes. Charlie Duke is with us on Open House, theopenhouse.net.au for the podcast. Charlie, the tenth man to walk on the moon. And uh, it was only when he came back a few years later that he had his, uh, I guess, own internal spiritual transformation. Forty years after that first moon landing, Charlie, uh, has it all been worth it, and do you think it should ever be done again? Well, it certainly was worth it. Uh, it was a great technical achievement. Uh, it was a, a, an economic boon to the world because out of the space program has been birthed uh, so many new technologies and systems and engineering practices that the return to the world economy is uh, hundreds of times more than was spent. The mor- morale uh, uplift it gave to the uh, the U.S. in a time of the Vietnam War and also uh, something that brought the world together, though for a short time it did sort of unite us that man has done this. Mm-hmm. And I think we should continue deep space. And I'm thankful that now that we're 
sort of pointed in the right direction with the uh, uh, Orion uh, and also the Altair, they call the Constellation Program, which hopefully will land us back on the moon sometime in the early 2020s. Okay, 50 years after it first happened. Yeah, you would have thought we'd have been to Mars by now, yeah. uh, but we chose to come back to Earth orbit with Space Shuttle and other spacecraft that have been good vehicles, but not with a sense of, to me, the sense of adventure and exploration that we had in Apollo. Yeah. Speaking of Mars, do you think we should pursue that? Well, I think we should. I think the human spirit is such that we need to explore, and uh, but the political economic argument against it is strong because of robotics are so good. But I think the human spirit will, will prevail, and eventually my great-grandchildren or some generation in the future will uh, look back at the Earth and just see a tiny little blue dot out there from the surface <laughs> of Mars. Have the experience that you had. Of course, we've now had uh, at least one airline that we know of here in Australia that are planning trips to uh, to space in the near future. Is the technology really moving that rapidly, do you think, to allow domestic space trips? Well, uh, certainly uh, near, or, uh, near space, up uh, to experience some uh, limited zero gravity, uh, well, zero gravity on a limited time frame. Uh, we're quite a ways away from actually uh, achieving orbital velocity. So these uh, first ones will uh, rocket you to 300,000 to 400,000 feet where you can experience uh, uh, zero uh, gravity, see this beautiful Earth from that altitude, and then plunge back into reentry five or ten minutes later. The technologies are not quite there yet to get you... Well, the technology's there, but whether people want to spend that much money to get in Earth orbit right now is going yes. to be, uh, uh, I think, an economic drag. Yes. Would you take but eventually, a... we'll do it. Yeah. Would you take a trip like that just for old time's sake? If I was flying it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, I bet you would. Now, Charlie, one last question. How do you feel with all the conspiracy theories that continue to go around the internet and even on TV programs every now and then that, you know, it never really happened, it never really happened, we never really went to the moon? Well, the evidence is overwhelming that we did go to the moon. Visuals that we sent back through the videos, uh, the TV, the photographs, there is absolute nothing on Earth uh, that you could even come close to duplicating that. There is uh, 600 pounds of moon rocks that were returned that are totally unique from any terrestrial rocks. And also, uh, if we were going to fake it, uh, why did we fake it nine times? Uh, we, we said we went to the moon nine times. We landed six. And if this was a big hoax, we were in it once and stopped. But the evidence is overwhelming that they launched us to the moon, and uh, we had six successful landings. Yeah, but the shadows are in the wrong place, Charlie, aren't they? The shadows well, are in the wrong place. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> if you look at, if you analyze all of the, all those uh, arguments, I can easily answer about the shadows, about no stars in the sky, no no hole under the lunar module where the rocket blast was, radiation problems. Uh, 
those are easily answered by uh, any technically informed person. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the detail with which you have just told us your story, I would uh, suggest, would certainly yeah, require... Yeah, us to the moon. Yes. Uh, all the audiences, listen, we really did land on the moon. <laughs> there was no fakery uh, involved. Yeah, and yet I guess as your, uh, your DVD has uh, so well put it, uh, you walked on the moon, but you also uh, now walk with the sun, the S-O-N. That's right. The walk on the moon, uh, as I say in the in the DVD, is uh, was fantastic. It la- but it lasted three days, required a lot of money and a lot of training. The walk with Jesus is free. Uh, he paid the price, and it lasts forever. <laughs> a nice place to end, Charlie Duke. It's been so fascinating to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Charlie Duke, the uh, tenth man on the moon with the Apollo 16 mission in 1972. His story is told in the book Moonwalker, and charlieduke.net is his website. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit theopenhouse.net.au.